This week on Making Contact. This is impossible for our government to do in our lifetimes. The only thing that the government can do now is pull out all the people from the islands. Planet Earth's average temperature has risen about one degree Fahrenheit in the last 50 years. By the end of the century, it will be several degrees higher. But global warming is doing more than simply making things a little warmer. It's changing rainfall, causing heat waves, and making sea level rise. Every day, the people living in Sundarban Islands, they go to sleep under water. In this edition of Making Contact, Daniel Grossman takes you to India in heat of the moment, sea level rise, part of a documentary series exploring how global warming is influencing the lives of people around the world. I'm Jasmine Lopez, and this is Making Contact. The Royal Bengal Tiger prowls India's Sundarbans Islands, just south of Calcutta. The Sundarbans Tiger Reserve is part of the world's largest unbroken mangrove forest. This national park is also home to the barking deer, estuarine crocodile, hundreds of bird species, and the Sundri tree, after which the region is thought to be named. Former park director Pronobesh Sanyal says tigers are a sensitive barometer of changes in these coastal forests. Sanyal has glimpsed tigers many times in his career, though none of these is memorable as one early morning encounter. I stopped. Tiger also stopped. And I saw it eye to eye. The tiger was actually expanding its body, like breathing sort of thing. I got a little scared. So man behind me, he said, it's not an actual charge. He's not doing anything. But you please look at him eye to eye. And with this small stick, you can make sound on your body. So I started doing that. <laughs> and uh, believe me, the tiger came down. It went inside forest, and then we went safely towards the jetty. So that was a very good experience. The tiger is also a gentleman. It's not man, gentle tiger. <laughs> but the gentle tiger also attacks viciously, earning it another nickname, Maneater. From a crowded ward at PG Hospital in central Calcutta, 29-year-old Anub Molik tells of being attacked while harvesting crabs in the Sundarbans. Worried friends and family are nearby. Molik lies rigidly on the floor, a white bandage wrapped under his chin and over the top of his head, framing his gaunt face. The tiger came and jumped on me. My friends had clubs in their hands. So the tiger took me 10 to 15 feet away from them and left me there. Then it ran away. His companions found Molik missing part of his left ear and with deep wounds on his neck. He says from now on, he'll find less dangerous work. I look around to find some work at home, but I'll never go to the jungle. Tigers are migrating northwards because there is a limit to the extent they can withstand the salinity. Pronobesh Senyal, the former Sundarbans reserve director, says rising sea level is making the brackish waters around the southernmost islands too salty. 
destroying the tiger's habitat. The main difficulty we are facing, human population is very near the northern edge of the Sundarban. So that is why the percentage of man-eating has increased in recent years. Prowling predators aside, water poses a direct menace to the people of the Sundarbans, many of whom live and work below sea level. Every day, the people living in Sundarban Islands, they go to sleep under water. Before the Sundarbans were cleared for farming, the tides washed them every day. Then dwellers erected thousands of miles of mud dikes, encircling each island in a protective hug. The rivers and the sea remain at the center of everyday life. At birth, babies are sprinkled with drops of the holy river Ganges, and the same waters sometimes wield a terrifying power. What you create in 25 years, you have built a house, you have crops in the field, you will become a beggar within one hour. Tushar Kanjalal is a white-haired man dressed in a traditional unadorned kurta smock. A schoolmaster in the Sundarbans for three decades, today Kanjalal is secretary of the Tagore Society for Rural Development. He says the earthen embankments require constant vigilance and frequent maintenance, and even the newest, strongest dikes can break up in storms. And what happens? The saline water enters into the island. All the crops are damaged. All the mud houses collapse. All the waters in the ponds, creeks, canals become saline. And you won't even find a drop of drinking water. A Hindu priest chants and struts at the Kapil Muni temple near the coast of Sagar, the most exposed of all inhabited Sundarbans islands. When tropical cyclones slam the Indian coast, Sagar receives the first and often heaviest blows. This temple is the destination of an annual pilgrimage, a Hindu celebration of the Ganges River. The origins of this shrine are long forgotten, though it's believed to be about 1,500 years old. What is certain is that the temple has been destroyed and rebuilt at least three times before, as the island's edge has crumbled under the relentless pounding of the sea. The pace of erosion is expected to pick up now as sea levels climb. A few steps from the temple, Mohammed Sheikh Ghafoor serves visitors sweet tea in tiny cups. Ghafoor once farmed 25 or 30 acres of rice and chili peppers and raised fish in shallow freshwater ponds. With his wife and six sons, he built a house of baked mud. But about 12 years ago, the thin dike protecting his land breached in a cyclone. His house melted into the sea like a sandcastle at high tide, along with most of his rice paddies and fish ponds. Gafur and his wife now live in this tea shop, a beach hut made of plastic tarps hung from a frame of bamboo poles. His sons, scattered elsewhere, work the land of others. Who thought about us? We're the people who lost our land. Here at his tea house, Gafur, my interpreter and I are joined by a couple of local farmers in an animated discussion about the hardships of island life 
and what might be done to relieve them. We're fed up with telling people our story. It's no use. They just listen, and when they leave, nothing happens. As a younger man in the world's largest democracy, Mohammed Sheikh Ghafoor took an active interest in politics. But over many years, a succession of natural disasters and failed attempts by the Indian government to mitigate them has left him embittered. This is impossible for our government to do in our lifetimes. The only thing that the government can do now is pull out all the people from the islands. Gafur is not alone in his troubles. About half of nearby Guramara Island has disappeared beneath the waves. Some of its inhabitants are now his neighbors on Sagar. Many farmers have abandoned island life altogether, further swelling the slums of Calcutta. Because of sea level rise, a lot of islands which are now being inhabited by people, that is 52 islands, will be not livable anymore. Shugoto Hazra, an oceanographer at Calcutta's Jadopur University, predicts India's Sundarbans Islands will lose 15% of their area by 2020, about 13 square miles, displacing up to 100,000 people. So people are losing their homeland and they are becoming a kind of environmental migrant. Hazra says that as climate change takes its course, environmental migrants will increasingly strain social services in India and the highly populated coastal delta of Bangladesh, just north of Calcutta on the Bay of Bengal. Bangladesh, home to 150 million, is the seventh most populous country in the world although it's only about the size of Louisiana. Most of Bangladesh is less than 40 feet above sea level. For many months each year, more than 10% of the country's surface is water. In 1988 and again in 1998, more than half of the country was flooded. With sea level expected to rise up to three feet in this century, an additional 10 to 20% of Bangladesh will be permanently lost displacing millions of people and destroying farmlands and fresh water supplies. Bangladesh is nature's laboratory on natural disaster. We have floods, we have droughts, we have heat waves, we have riverbank erosion, we have storm surges, we have cyclones, we have tornadoes. Ainun Nishat is Bangladesh's representative to the International Union for Conservation of Nature and an advocate of the view that his country must find its own strategy to adapt to the effects of global warming. Now, there are forces among NGOs who would like to see the government spend more energy on environmental refugees or climate change refugees and inundation from the sea and those sort of things. I believe that's Western agenda. That's not Bangladesh's agenda. Nishat says the world has underestimated how resilient his country is in the face of natural disasters of the sort its people have faced for millennia. So having said that, am I not worried about sea level rise? Answer is yes and no. I'm not worried against inundation of the land and people migrating because their houses would be underwater. I knew Nishat believes his country will develop the necessary infrastructure to protect its people from the slow but inexorable rise of the sea. But I'm worried because in the coastal area, the frequency of this cyclonic event would increase, like the cyclone Siddur. Bangladesh is used to large-scale natural disasters and cyclones. 
But the people here are still in shock at this sudden violence. On November 15th, 2007, Cyclone Sitter struck Bangladesh with 140 mile per hour winds and 20 foot waves. After the storm had passed, three to 5,000 people were dead and 10 times that were injured. The closer that we've got to the coast, the more damage that we've seen like here. This whole row of shops, which has just been swept. Half a million houses were destroyed. Because of global warming, storms of this magnitude are expected not only to become more frequent, but also to penetrate farther inland as the sea level rises. And for this, Bangladesh is not prepared, says Ainu Nishad. I had the privilege of talking to Senator John Kerry in Bali. And after some discussion, Senator Kerry pointed me and said, if I could give one thing to you from the United States to address your climate change concern, what you do ask for? I said, I would ask for long-term meteorological forecast. We need some satellite information. We need more modeling experience. This is an advanced technology. We need that. But up to now, protecting Bangladesh's land along the rivers and coasts has centered around a very old technology, dikes. This is river. Right side is the river. And this is old land. A heavy-set man dressed in wrinkle-free pants and a spotless polo shirt is driving me through the outskirts of Kulna, the third largest city in Bangladesh. He's Shafiqul Islam, director of a small college and founder of the Pani, or Water Committee, a grassroots farmers' rights group. From our car, Islam gesticulates toward a man-made pond, rice seedlings poking up from its surface, a dirt dike holding the brown water captive. You need to understand, this is the river and that is the farmland. Now you can see that the river is full of sediment. Islam says this area, like the Sunderbans, was once flooded at high tide each day. Farmers built dikes to create freshwater paddies for rice and fish farming, but their flimsy embankments often gave way in storms and seasonal river floods. In the 1960s, at the behest of the government, international aid organizations began helping to construct a system of sturdier dikes, strong enough to serve as roads. Because. In this country, we always... Because in our country, we always uh, think that the Western countries' countries manners are very good, and they are very very knowledgeable. knowledgeable. They know everything. But we are very poor countries. We We don't have vast knowledge. We don't have good engineers here, and therefore we have to invite engineers from outside. But that attitude led in time to disaster. As the modern dikes withheld sediment year-round, river bottoms rose. And without new infusions of silt, paddies sank as the old soil compacted. Rivers and dikes began to tower over the farmlands like elevated highways. In a matter of decades, once productive plots stagnated and became infertile. People had no food. Shafiqul Islam and others proposed cutting dikes to let silty water flow in and out for a few years to replenish the depleted paddies as it once had. Water officials and engineers rebuffed their suggestion. So in 1997, a band of frustrated farmers decided to defy the government and test the idea right here at the crest of a dike. Shafiqul Islam. 
There were many police and government officials present while we cut the channel, but thousands and thousands of people were there to help us, and we did it. As an estimated 20,000 farmers watched, a team of strong men hacked a hole in the dike with shovels. A huge amount of water went to the wetland side with silt. After the high tide is in full, the water remains stagnant for about 15 or 20 minutes. And at this time, the silt is deposited in the wetland. The plan to save the paddies outside the city of Kulna worked. In three years, they had collected a four-foot deposit of new silt. The dikes were repaired, and rice and fish flourish here once again. Islam says the same method, if more widely adopted, will be crucial in shoring up Bangladesh's delta against the slow advance of the sea. While there may be no permanent solution, experts agree it will take a concerted effort incorporating many such ideas and billions upon billions of dollars for Bangladesh to adapt to the new conditions being brought by climate change. Another approach is the cultivation of rice and other crops genetically engineered to withstand saltier water. One Bangladeshi scientist wants to expand the use of traditional floating vegetable gardens made of packed water hyacinths to help feed this fast-growing nation. And a local architect has received funding from the United Nations Environment Program to build a fleet of school boats to keep Bangladesh's education system afloat. Just as global warming is increasing at an ever faster rate, so will the population of Bangladesh rise to an estimated 300 million by mid-century. The difficulty of growing enough food here increases as global warming creates conditions favorable to more frequent and more severe storms, and rising sea level compounds the flooding caused by storm surges. For example, in 2007, storms and flooding wiped out 6% of Bangladesh's rice harvest. Atik Rahman, director of the Bangladesh Center for Advanced Studies, an environmental think tank, says such disasters have wide-ranging consequences. The political implication, the social implication of food security is big here. You know, the food prices control whether government stays or government goes. Rahman says his country's most important priority should be securing its food supply and he wants the rest of the world to understand what's at stake for developing nations like his. Because, as you know, more than half of Bangladesh is really poor, abject poverty. And among the poor, in the total budget, 60 to 70 percent is food, while for the rich American, it's 3 to 10 percent. We'll be right back. This is Making Contact. You've been listening to a special excerpt from the documentary Heat of the Moment, produced by Daniel Grossman and originally broadcast by WBUR Boston in collaboration with the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. To find out more about the Heat of the Moment series, visit our website at radioproject.org. That's also where you can download past shows and make a difference by supporting our work. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Up next, Making Contact's Jasmine Lopez interviews Daniel Grossman about his work. Earlier in the show, we heard one part of the documentary, Heat of the Moment. This part was about sea level rise in India. 
Daniel reported from France, South America, Mongolia, Southern Africa, Bangladesh, and India, exploring how global warming is influencing the lives of people around the world. Daniel, thanks for talking with us. It's a pleasure. Daniel, you reported heat of the moment quite a while ago, but your reporting is focused on climate change. Could you tell us more about your work? About 15 years ago, I discovered that climate change was a big problem, and I decided I wanted to uh, devote my uh, career to reporting on it, its impacts, its causes and consequences. And I've been traveling to various parts of the world ever since to, to, uh, to learn about it. How did you first begin your work on heat of the moment? Prior to Heat of the Moment, I did another project that I called Meltdown about uh, ice around the world. And I decided that um, I, I needed to focus more on the human impacts of climate change. I wanted to show how uh, climate change was affecting people uh, right now um, because I, I hoped that, uh, that people could, uh, who, who are uh, skeptical that this is a problem, might be able to uh, to uh, to empathize with other people who are already feeling uh, the effects of climate change. And so that was the my initial thought. How did you come across the story in India and those <coughs> communities? Well, I was looking, I, I think I, I, I looked for, I, I wanted to have a diversity of, uh, of climate change impacts. So uh, I, I, uh, I reported on the, uh, a big heat wave in Europe, uh, because uh, one of the things that climate change does is is uh, it, it 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 causes uh, uh, greater incidence of extreme weather events, and um, I wanted to do something related to sea level rise, and there's been a lot of talk about uh, Bangladesh, and the, uh, the Bangladesh is a country with. Uh, uh, a very large population, about 150 million people, and uh, in a relatively small area, and it's very low-lying. So I was thinking about Bangladesh, but as I, um, uh, I uh, did my research, I discovered that, um, that this uh, one area uh, right at the, the mouth of uh, the, uh, the Ganges and uh, Brahmaputra rivers um, uh, th that is that is a, a huge wetland uh, was had had some important impacts uh, that I could see now, and so it it just uh, it, I immediately realized this is going to be pretty interesting here to see what's going on uh, with these uh, mangrove forests, the largest mangrove for, uh, unbroken mangrove forest in the world, and as it turned out, I ended up uh, reporting half of the time in India in this um, uh, mangrove forest uh, called the Sunderbans, and half of my reporting was uh, in Bangladesh itself. So what did you find? Can you take us there to this community? Tell us a little bit more about it. Well, I, I went to, I traveled for uh, two or three weeks in both India and in Bangladesh. The, uh, the, uh, the park, the Sunderbans Park, um, a part of part of the, the, the Sunderbans is a archipelago of islands, uh, very low lying islands, uh, mangrove forest and former mangrove forest, and uh, you have to travel by boat to many of the the places because they're islands. The, some of it is uh, is a, a national park, 
uh, where there is some uh, uh, some amazing uh, wildlife, a lot of unusual birds, and of course the the uh, the Bengal the Bengal tiger, uh, which is the uh, the national uh, animal of India. And so we tried to see uh, as many different aspects of uh, changes that are occurring and impacts uh, of climate change in the Sunderbans. So we spent some time in in the park uh, where uh, where uh, the tigers are protected, um, although they don't always stay in the park. And we visited um, a number of islands that have uh, experienced a, a lot of erosion and where people have lost land. Um, uh, lost their farms and become impoverished because of that. And uh, we saw the uh, embankments, they're called, they're, they're mud dikes that hold back the water on some of these islands and uh, talk to people who live behind these embankments. And it, it was, uh, it's a very beautiful area. A lot of people go to the Sunderbands to experience wildlife. Uh, uh, a lot of birders go there because there are uh, uh, many, many unusual birds there. Uh, then, of course, there's the Bengal tiger there. There's the barking deer. There are uh, crocodiles. So um, it, it's quite a beautiful place. Do you have any idea how those communities are doing now? The situation hasn't gotten any better since uh, since I was reporting there. The main issue is that sea level is rising and that these and these places are very low lying and so they're already uh, very susceptible to to storm damage for instance um, there are cyclones there which is the uh, Indian Ocean equivalent of uh, of hurricanes and um, so if sea level starts even a little bit um, higher uh, there's just that much more damage when a storm occurs also um, it appears that storms are getting more intense, so the, the communities are becoming more and more um, uh, vulnerable every year. When I was there, uh, I talked to uh, a number of people who had lost land because of, uh, of storm damage. These islands uh, are actually below sea level. Um, in, in their natural state, they were mangrove forests, which were uh, covered in water um, part of every day. The, the the tide would come in and they would be covered in water and then the tide would go out and the and they weren't uh, covered in water anymore and there was a forest growing there a low forest uh, people um, built uh, mud dams which they call embankments around the perimeter uh, perimeters of these islands so the islands uh, ended up looking kind of like bowls and as you're uh, riding around uh, going from island to island you'll see these these big walls and you can see uh, a tree um, poking up over the wall, or you can see uh, a house, the, the roof of a house uh, above the wall. And you land, you land uh, at, at the embankment, then you climb up above it, and then you see that there's all this dry land on the other side. So they've essentially drained uh, an area that normally was uh, wet uh, a good portion of every day. And so they're just extremely vulnerable. And so, and since they're made of mud, of course, they breach rather easily in a storm. And so I met people traveling around who had a lost land because uh, during a storm there might have been a small uh, breach in, uh, in in an embankment, and then uh, because of erosion, uh, water flowing in would would uh, make the uh, the hole bigger, and uh, then the 
the uh, the land inside would start eroding, and they could. Uh, some people had lost uh, large portions of their farms and could no longer uh, no longer had a livelihood as a farmer. So I think that's still happening. Um, um, the the uh, the these islands are are slowly eroding away, and will continue to do so as sea level rises, and also as uh, appears to be the case as uh, storms. Um, grow in intensity. Thanks again for talking with us. I really appreciate your inviting me to talk to you. That's it for this edition of Making Contact. Thanks for listening to Daniel Grossman's documentary, Heat of the Moment. Daniel's report was produced at and originally broadcast by WBUR Boston in collaboration with the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. To find out more about Heat of the Moment, or to learn about Daniel's latest book, visit our website at radioproject.org. That's also where you can download past shows and make a difference by supporting our work. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. The Making Contact team includes Lisa Rudman, Quan Booth, Andrew Stelzer, Laura Flynn, George Lavender, and Rochelle Robinson. I'm Jasmine Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.